0: We're going to be in Genesis and uh, verses 1 through 4, but uh, obviously we're starting a new series, The Goodness of God. And um, it'll last five weeks. And uh, it surprised me what I learned. I mean, you know, I figured like you got tons of scriptures, tons of Psalms, tons of Proverbs. That talk about the goodness, but I whenever I sit down to study, I ask them to show me things that you know maybe we miss or we don't consider or we overlook. I want to see, you know, new things in the word. And uh, and so what I did whenever I start a study, one of the, the practices I've done probably since nineteen ninety-eight, is uh, I will go through the law of first mention. So that's wherever the word is first mentioned, it sets the context for the rest of the uh, the study. And uh, so when it talks about the goodness of God or good, obviously you had to start in Genesis because He saw that it was good. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, let's let's look at that because I learned a lot of great things just from that. Particular uh, spot, so we're going to examine the Old Testament aspect of goodness, and then we're going to touch on the New Testament aspect of goodness at the end. And uh, uh, also, I'm going to give y'all a lot of Hebrew and a lot of Greek, but it's in the notes. So if it's not in the notes, I'll let you know. Okay. So in Genesis, we'll start with verse one of chapter one to uh, verse four. It says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens." and the earth, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then he said, let there be light and there was light and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. Okay, so there's a, yep, there's uh, two Hebrew words are being used in this context. The first word created is um, bara. And it means in the Hebrew, quote, to create. But only God is the subject of bara. Okay? So he's the only one that creates. The enemy cannot create. God alone is the creator. Alright? So anything that the enemy tries to do, it's a counterfeit. Or, he steals from the word to make something that is wicked look good, like the rainbow now symbolizing homosexuality and lesbianism. The rainbow belongs to God. Okay, So, that's what he does. He steals or he counterfeits, which is basically the same thing. Now, the word um, that I, I next want to look at is without form and void. So without form is tohu, and it means formlessness and confusion. And then in the Wiest, uh, Old Testament Dictionary, it tells us it's, it's a hard word to give definition to because it's only used a few times uh, in the Bible. But they said that it describes, uh, how do you say that word? Is it prime, prime, primeval? Uh, earth? a land reduced to primeval chaos and formlessness. It can also, um, a picture a is like a destroyed city, like if you see those old Civil War pictures where cities are just ruins or pieces are left of buildings. It also means nothingness or empty space, a barren wasteland, that which is vain and futile. Interestingly, it can also mean unfounded allegations. Now, we've seen that a lot in the media using unfounded allegations against people. Why? To create confusion, to mar the form of an individual, who they are, their character, etc., or to try to form an opinion of something that is not accurate. Also, the nations compared to God, and then also human rulers. It can be disorder, chaos, confusion, all things that are opposed to the organization, direction, and order that God has demonstrated. Now, just real quick, you know, part of, like, if you study history and you see how, like, socialists or communists have taken over countries, what's the first thing they do? Do what? Well, yeah, they take your weapons away. But they create... Propaganda. Through propaganda, they create confusion and chaos. In fact, you can read Karl Marx's works. That's what you have to do. You have to create confusion and chaos. And so lawlessness is what they want so that people are desperate enough to then have whatever the, you know, The party wants to get into power. They'll be desperate enough to, okay, we, we surrender. We'll go ahead and do that because it's so chaotic, all right? So just know that wherever there is tohu, there is a lack of order. There's a lack of direction, and there's a lack of organization. So this is what surprised me because the very first implication of God's goodness is organization, direction. order opposed to chaos confusion and disorder in other words his goodness brings order to our lives so that is so key because you can look at wherever there is disorder then you can decree God's goodness into that situation or you can set up healthy boundaries now this can go into your soul right if you're fine and you're happy and things are great and then all of a sudden you get around that one person and you feel confused or there's chaos or your emotions are stirred up, hmm, that might be a good indicator to make changes in that relationship. Now sometimes you're too close to the person, they might be a family member or you might be married to them where if you cut them off it may not be a good idea, Well it's only But even then you can limit your contact or set up boundaries where you say, hey, what you're talking about does not bring peace. You know, I don't wanna listen to complaining. I don't wanna listen to gossip. I don't wanna listen to Stryfield talk. I don't wanna listen to all of that. I need you to have proper boundaries around me and that way we can have a good relationship. And if they love you and if they're honoring, they will be happy to do that. Or maybe we should ask ourselves personally, when people are around me, do they feel better? Or am I bringing chaos and confusion? Because there's a difference between challenging people to be who God has called them to be versus people just feeling icky when they're around us, right? So we want to be careful that we're not bringing tofu or tofu because tofu is disgusting. Have you ever had tofu? Yeah. I mean, I'd rather eat cardboard. Just give me this paper here. Alright, so whenever God's goodness comes into our lives, you can feel Him setting things in place, rearranging other areas, and guiding us to His direction for our lives. So this just might be a good place to examine. You know, look at your health, your finances, your relationships, your emotions, your mind, everything. And whatever is not experiencing order and goodness uh, direction, etc. I would ask Holy Spirit for some wisdom in that area. Now, the word "void" is bohu, so tohu and bohu. <coughs> bohu means void or empty. It depicts the state of matter after God had created it, but before He fashioned it for habitation. It's used in combination with tohu, which means without form, every time so tohu and bohu are twins so where there is confusion there is emptiness okay all right now some people when you look at verse 1 where it says that in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and then you look at verse 2 where it describes the condition of the earth some people um, teach there was something very catastrophic and demonic that happened between verse 1 and verse 2 and I'm not actually dismissing that idea nor am I opposed to that idea um, but then we would have to say that is the case with juniper juniper Jupiter uh, Mars Saturn etc right because they are without form they're void they're very chaotic and life cannot be sustained on them. So I'm not again dismissing that. Uh, I'm just saying that it doesn't have, it doesn't go over into the other planets. But God, in His wisdom, picked Earth to be where He created man. Okay. So that, and obviously science shows why. I mean, how far the sun is away, and just there's like different things that make Earth uh, a place for habitation. Now I also want to show you the next thing. In the goodness of God that I learned, that experiencing the goodness of God is not a passive exercise, but a an active participation and cooperation with God. See, I think there's like a, a religious mindset when it comes to God that you know, the, the false teaching that He's in control, which we know that He's in charge, and He gave earth to the sons of men to control, right? So he's in charge, he's sovereign, he's a God of all, but he's not in charge of little children being murdered or molested or women being raped or wars. None of that's his will. He gave that to man. We're supposed to bring the goodness of God into the earth. Instead, we failed. And uh, so there's this idea that if God wants to bless me, he knows where I live, okay? So we get very passive. But God is not some king standing on a throne that just throws out goodies every once in a while. He's an extremely relational God. That's why, well, for example, we have to pray things into the earth because, again, according to Psalm 115, He gave earth to us. So God abides within the constraints of His word. So his word is, I gave that to y'all. Therefore, in order for me to move into the earth, I have to find people who are praying my will in faith. Okay? So it's, it's, a, it's a legal thing. There's a legality there. That's why, why God let this happen? Well, I don't know. How much have you prayed into it, right? I mean, we don't want to necessarily beat people up when they're going through crisis, but I get tired of people blaming God for bad things in their lives like if you look at uh, Romans chapter 8 the context of Romans eight twenty eight, all things working for your good is in prayer a person of prayer all things will work for their good if you're not people of prayer all things will not work for your good right so You might suffer loss, and you might suffer things that are not necessary for you to suffer. So prayer is the context for God operating in our lives, but so are the promises of God. So we have to cooperate. He's very relational. That's why he gives us dreams, and he shows us things in his word, and prophetic words, and things like that. So we see that here in Genesis, he brought order by decree. So that means he saw something, and then he said it. Okay? Now, we have the same privilege. I'm not going to turn there, but I want to to examine these two verses, then we're going to go over to John. But in uh, uh, Hebrews 11 3, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Okay? That is simply saying, He decreed a thing. And it was established. And that decree is still in operation to this day or everything would have blown up, right? So his word is maintaining the frame of the earth. Our part is in 2 Peter 1, 2 through 4, one of my favorite passages. It's a life passage for me. I absolutely love it. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, real quick, the implication is that grace and peace is multiplied in the context of knowing more and more about Father and Jesus. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly Great and precious promises that through these, the promises, we can be partakers or share in the divine nature or of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So this is saying that by the promises God has given us, we actually become more like him. God wants the promises fulfilled in your life. He wants you to live the life that he has destined you to live because when you do, you look more like him. I mean, who wants to be a Christian when all you guys, a bunch of sour-faced, complaining, negative Nancys and Nathans walking around look like they've been sucking on pickles all day? I don't want to follow a God that where everybody's woe is me and this and that. If you know God, even in difficult times, you have hope. You have a peace that you can get into if you find yourself getting out of, right? There are things that have been given to us that we should be the happiest, smartest, uh, most alive people on the planet, okay? We should have the most hope of anybody. So, back to our act of participation. The word promise is epigelma, and it means to uh, proclaim or promise it's only used here in 2 Peter. So one time. In addition of the ma that's on the end, it's the result of epigio, which is to tell or declare. It's the, uh, to proclaim as a public announcement or decree. So what that means is the promise is in the decree. So the promise isn't going to happen in your life by osmosis. The promise happens in your life when you decree it that's why it's so important to not say I will one day or I will be blah blah I am healed now I walk in divine health now I am a millionaire now now that's my own personal promise for the Kingdom of Simon I have but whatever God gives you that is what you say so what you decree is what you get. Therefore, if you don't decree the promises of God, which are contained in the Word and His personal words to you, if you don't decree those, and instead you decree the opposite, guess what you get? <laughs> That's why negative speaking by faith is so dangerous. In uh, First or Second Corinthians, I believe 5.13 or 5.12, it says, We believed, therefore we spoke. Or we believed, therefore we speak. So you can't say the promises like there's some religious mantra, you know we're not Buddhist here. You say the promises because you believe them. If you don't believe it, then get in the Word and meditate on it. Then once you have the faith, speak it. Because you will literally frame your world with your words. Just like God did. He's given us that honor. So you decree and then when you release the decree, it releases the nature of God in the promise. So that's why Peter says that through the promises we partake in the divine nature. When God speaks, he releases his nature every time. When we agree with him, we then have the same thing happen in our lives. So we see that in Genesis 1, through 1-4, darkness was on the face of the deep, deep. What are you doing when you release a promise of God when you decree it? You're releasing light. Okay? Because light is revelation. Light is God. That is who He is. So when you release His words, you're releasing light. So, and this is important, you got to hear me. Don't be surprised when darkness becomes darker. In other words, you start releasing the decree, and you're like, man, I am jacked. What is wrong with me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, when you start releasing the promises of God and see what the Word says, if you're not careful, you'll become focused on what you are not yet, and that is a trick. you got to focus on who you are becoming. So don't look back. At where you're coming out of or the darkness you got to look forward to the light because that's a trick of the enemy but also the heart what condemns us first our own hearts not even the devil condemns us first our hearts do but you cannot change a negative with another negative you change a negative with a promise Okay, so don't get fascinated by how messed up you might still be in an area. You've got to stay focused on the light. So when the Lord saw the disorder, he didn't go, Oh my goodness, isn't it terrible out there? Do you see the level of darkness on the face of the earth? What are we going to do? He didn't do that. He said, I know the answer to this darkness. And then he said, light be. That's what he said. So if you have to do that, like if you see like, man, I got this problem here then just decree the opposite. Don't come into agreement with the problem. It's the dumbest thing when we come into agreement with the problem. I don't know why we keep doing that. You know, we can discuss things and discuss matters of the heart with people that we trust and their confidants, but you cannot let them keep you focused on the darkness, nor can you bring them into focus on the darkness. Am I making sense? Okay, you've got to stay focused on what God wants, and that is light. Now we know that this light was not the sun, the moon, and the stars because that was created on day four. So in John, if we go over to John, um, which is one of my favorite books on the Lord because he really uh, goes into um, the, the prophetic works that the Lord did, excuse me, all of his miracles. But if you look at John 1, I like how he starts it. He says, in the beginning was the word, And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay, so the word comprehend means uh, there's like three interpretations. The darkness could not seize the light or overcome it. The the darkness could not comprehend it with mental or moral effort. Uh, And then also, or it didn't understand it, uh, it means to quench, extinguish, or snuff out the light by stifling it. So darkness cannot overcome light. Darkness does not understand light. And darkness cannot extinguish the light of God. Okay? And we know darkness is obviously symbolic of um, sin and the enemy and all that. So he released his life essence into the earth, his sound. Because light and sound are the same thing. They're just on a different frequency. So like if you tune, uh, I don't know if it's four, it might be 440. You tune your guitar to 440, you play C, you're playing love. It has the same megahertz as the emotion of love. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I think, uh, is it minor E? The, the little tiny string? oh yeah, Easter. Uh, I think if you play that and tune it on 440, you're playing joy. So, God has created sound to connect to us on a, an emotional level. Light's the same thing. The rainbow art is just the same thing as sound on different spectrums. So, the absence of light is the absence of His nature in any given er, er, area. With the promises, or within the promises, the ability to see its fullness. Now, if we go back to um, in Genesis where it says the Spirit, the breath of God, He was hovering over the face of the deep waters. That word hover means to move or to tremble. It's a vibrating. So the Holy Spirit was going back and forth over the waters in a vibrating movement. What is sound? It's vibration. Yeah. So there's a, there's a connecting. There's a unifying of sound and light that's happening in this moment. So he was sweeping and moving across the waters to bring to pass the decree of the Lord. And the decree of light was explosive, and it overwhelmed darkness, and God saw that it was good. Okay? So, good is toba. And it means good, well-pleasing, fruitful, morally correct, proper, And convenient, which I thought was interesting. It's something that is appealing and pleasant to the senses, useful and profitable, abundant and plentiful, kind and benevolent, good in a moral sense as opposed to evil, proper and becoming. Goodness is also a general state of well being or happiness and is the better. Of two alternatives. That right there is what your life should look like. I mean, we can take it practical, right? We don't want to just be all ethereal and discussing these things in the abstract. Your life should be fruitful. It should have meaning. It should be useful for others. You should bring the goodness of God into other people's lives. You should be profitable for people. There should be a morality about you that other people may not have. Right? So all of these things are the goodness of God that we're supposed to live in. Because when He said, let there be, He created our home. Goodness is our home. That's what it should be. We should live in the goodness of God. So if we consider that God is releasing His goodness in the earth, then we can see that we're supposed to dwell in His goodness. And that goodness is well-pleasing, fruitful, moral, proper, appealing, useful, profitable, abundant, plentiful, kind, benevolent, happy, and always the better. See, I love that. His goodness is my home. It doesn't mean that there's not, you know, stupid people out there that, maybe you know, irritate me or cause problems, or maybe I'm being stupid and I cause other people problems. It's not saying that there's not challenges, bad decisions, or even persecution. But what it is saying is that because you have God, you live in his goodness. That's what it is. So in spite of any trials you're going through, whether outside of your body or inside your body, the goodness of God is supposed to be our home. Now, here is a problem. A lot of people don't believe God is good all the time. He gets blamed for everything, right? And so if you don't have that solidified, that no matter what happens in your life or to you, that God is good all of the time, then it won't be your home. You won't trust Him. I mean, how can you pray for God to bring healing in your body if you think He made you sick? How can you pray for God to turn a nation around if you think he's doing it, right? Like even our end-time doctrine, we got to be extremely careful. We can get very passive on our end-time doctrine and think, well, this is the way it is. Let me show you something in Daniel. And we know that certain things are going to happen. There's going to be a war between good and life uh, at the end of the age. But this is my scripture for the end of the age. In uh, Daniel chapter 11, let me see if I can find this. It's been a while since I've been here. Okay, here it is. So it's talking about the Antichrist. And it says in 1131, Enforced it shall be mustered by him and they shall uh, defile the sanctuary fortress. They shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now, a lot of times the prophecy in the Old Testament and even the New Testament has an immediate fulfillment uh, and a future fulfillment. There's like a dual thing. Some of the prophecies carry over into the end of the age as well. This one is one of those. We know that this verse was speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes who took over Israel He made them stop all their sacrifices and he set up the altar of Zeus, I believe, in their temple in the most holy place. But it's also referring to the Antichrist. And we know that because Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation run, right? So they would have instantly thought of Antiochus Epiphanes, instantly, because that's what they called that, the abomination of desolation. And it was Antiochus Epiphanes, they called him uh, another name because that meant like the great one or something. They did a play on his last name, Epiphanes, and it said the crazy, he was, you know, the crazy guy is what it meant. But anyway, they're deranged. But uh, the uh, abomination of desolation being in the sanctuaries, he pulled in what happened there into their future. What is interesting is when Antiochus did that, it kicked off the Maccabees. And the Maccabees are like, O-H-E, double, hockey sticks, no. We're not going to allow this. They mustered up an army. They started fighting against Antiochus. Then, who showed up on the shores? Rome. Rome showed up on the shores, met Antiochus' Epiphanes, and the general drew a circle around him. And said you have a choice you can either go back home or we're gonna fight you so at this point Rome is the superpower of the world Antiochus very smartly went back home right and Rome took over Israel and that prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah who will be in control at the end the same Empire so that's what Daniel says right So we've got this dual thing going on. Then it says, verse 32, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he, the Antichrist, will corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they'll be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. Uh, so this right here says that even at the end of the age, those who know God are going to be very active in resisting evil. We should never just sit back and let whatever happened happen. We've got to fight until the end. And that's why it's so important. Like even Jeremiah, when he was praying for Judah, and the Lord's like, stop praying. It's too late. Stop praying. He wouldn't stop because it was his nation, Right? So we've got to keep moving forward and believing that the goodness of God is the will of God in all situations. So, and by the way, when we do the next one on, uh, I think it's the next one or the one after, there's an aspect of his goodness that when I read it and studied it, I literally sat back in my chair and I was like, what on earth? (laughs) So wait till we get to that, just a little tease. Okay, so it's crucial to understand that God is good because if we don't believe that, then we might passively live in the lesser or come into agreement with what is not good. Sickness, debt, depression, lack. We might even fall into the sin of attributing evil to God. And we might miss the fact that releasing and demonstrating His goodness is one of our main assignments. Releasing and demonstrating His goodness is one of our main assignments. Now, we see for the rest of everything, you know, he decrees, he looks at it, he says it's good. But then we get to the creation of man, right? So he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and then he gives him dominion over everything. So he created man in his own image, in the image of God, male and female. So man is not a gender. It is mankind as a whole. Right, Male and female is mankind. Okay. Now, we've got some more creating going on in Genesis 2-7, where it says that God formed man of the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That word created there is the same as in Genesis 1-1. However, formed is a different word. It means to form, to fashion, to shape, to devise. The primary meaning of the word is derived from the idea of cutting or framing like in the womb. The molding of clay, the framing of seasons, the forging of metal, the crafting of weapons, the making of plans. So he took loose dirt and he built man with his own hands. God did. Isn't that amazing? And then he knelt down and he breathed into his nose. He gave man mouth to mouth. So the very first thing Adam saw was father. Isn't that amazing? And to this day, like when babies are born, do you know they can only see from here to here? For a long time, that's all they can see is mama's face, daddy's face. So to me, this is such a picture of the goodness of God. He breathes his own nature, his light, everything into him, he gave him life. But here's also for people that call themselves Christians and they think abortion is okay. You can see right here that God forms babies in the womb. God is involved in that. It doesn't matter if a person knows God or not. That baby in the womb is a gift from God. So anybody that claims Jesus Christ and thinks it's okay to kill babies in the womb probably needs to go back and look at their doctrine and their belief of God And maybe, just maybe, do a little bit of study when it comes to the womb and all that God does within it. Because half the church thinks that abortion is okay. I don't even know how that happened. All right. Now, in verse 31, it says he saw everything that he made and that it was very good. So after all his work, he sat down and he rested. Now, the word very means greatly, great, abundance, might, power, and exceedingly. It is a high degree of goodness. It's exceedingly, abundantly, and powerfully good. Okay. Now, um, obviously, you know, we know that after Adam and Eve fell, the earth came under subjection to the enemy. But I want to show you guys something on the goodness of God that the enemy does to this day. So, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, let me show you this because this will help you recognize when he's starting to talk to you. In verse 5, and now this is the serpent talking to the woman, it says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye in a tree desirable to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and then she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate." So he was standing right there. We always get the bad end of the deal, us ladies. (laughs) Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Okay, so the word good used by both the serpent and Eve is the same word used in the creation story, letting us know that goodness must be sourced within the context of relationship with Father that equals knowing Him, His ways, His reputation, and His character because something can seem good and actually be bad. Y'all catch that? Okay, so that's important because there was nothing, there was no clue that this tree was bad. Other than, the Lord said, "Don't eat from that tree." Well, why would He say that? That's like telling a kid, "Don't put you know a fork in the light, you know fixture." And then what do they do? They put a fork in the light fixture. God never wanted robots. He wanted people to love Him by choice. That's why that tree was there. Okay, so it's just like us. We don't want to be an obligation to anybody people to be around us because they have to, because we're whatever to them. We don't want that. It's the same thing with Father. He doesn't want people to love him because they have to. He wants people that love him in spite of everything else that would distract them. right? So his goodness has to be sourced. The only way you're going to recognize if something is good is by his word. The enemy comes as an angel of light. Even the enemy appears to be light. So nothing can be apart from presence. That's why principles without presence are so dangerous. You have to always pursue presence. So for Eve, she saw it was useful and fruitful and convenient. It was pleasant. It was attractive. And the word desirable means to take pleasure in, to desire, to lust, to covet, and to desire intensely. So if something can appear to be good that is not, what is our standard? The word. God had already spoken to Adam through the knowledge of him. Right? Adam received the word directly. Eve received it indirectly. But the word alone was not enough for them. Now, he visited every day. You would have thought they would have had a relationship with him. So here's a couple questions I have. Number one, why were they even by the tree? Do you ever wonder that? Why were they by the tree? If... If the Lord says, hey, don't eat from that tree, that's probably a good indication to not even go near it. So the fact that they're standing there near the tree tells me they wanted that tree. They wanted to eat from it. You will you be like, well, the devil tempted them. Actually, their heart had already started tempting them because they were by the tree. So this, the devil made me do it, is a cop-out. The devil can't make us do anything, right? So they're standing next to the tree, And then here's the second thing. They believe that God was withholding something good from them. The enemy will do that. He'll make you think that God is withholding something good from you. And they thought they would be wise. The word wise means to act with insight and to be prudent. The enemy made them feel they were lacking something, and he besmirched the character of God. And so it looked good, therefore it must be good. He uses the same things. Well, did God really say that? You know, I mean, really, he just doesn't want you to be happy. Because if he wanted you to be happy, he would just give his blessing. You could just go ahead and do whatever, right? So that's how the enemy works. And he'll even find people that will agree with that nonsense. So once they ate from that tree, the glory was gone. Now, by the way, where it says they recognized they were naked, that's the first place uh, sexual shame came in. Did y'all know that? So it's like a shame of your body, a shame that you were designed to be a sexual being. That came in right there. Now obviously within the context of marriage, but you know what I mean. He created us male, he created us female. You know, it's funny. I thought we were birthing persons and there were no genders. But all of a sudden, since Roe versus Wade, it's all of a sudden women are back. Did you notice that? It's crazy. Okay, so in Romans three twenty three it says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, not righteousness, not goodness, His glory." Listen to that verse in the passion. We are, have all sinned and are in need of the glory of God. So Jesus came and He restored that glory. In John seventeen twenty through twenty three in the passion, which I love, he, this is the Lord praying right before He was arrested. I ask not only for these disciples, but for also all those who will one day believe in me through their message, which includes us. I pray for them all to be joined together as one, even as you and I, Father, are joined together as one. I pray for them to become one with us, so that the world will recognize that you sent me. For the very glory you've given to me, I've given to them, so they will be joined together as one and experience the same unity that we enjoy. You live fully in me, and now I live fully in them, so that they will experience perfect unity. And the world will be convinced that you have sent me, for they will see that you love each one of them with the same passionate love you have for me. But what did he say? The very glory you have given to me, I have given to them so that they can be joined together as one and experience the same unity. So guess what? Offense, unforgiveness, and disunity is actually part of the fallen mindset, not part of God's. The glory of God, if you want to live in it, you need to pursue peace with all men. You've got to have brave communication, you've got to be able to take the risk and communicate with one another, and maintain unity, right? It's like the Lord. He wasn't afraid to say, Guys, I asked you to pray for me, and you keep sleeping. What are you doing? You know, like he had brave communication. He called Peter Satan. You know? And we get our feelings hurt over the slightest thing. So the glory of God requires a courageous heart, because the glory of God exposes cracks. It's the same thing, light exposes darkness, the glory exposes cracks. You don't want to run from what is happening, you've got to make sure you face it. Sometimes you do have to go into hiding them and get healed up, but that doesn't mean that you want to be in disunity with others. So the glory was given to us for unity. In Colossians 1.26 it says, there is a divine mystery, a secret surprise that has been concealed from the world for generations But now it's being revealed, unfolded and manifested for every holy believer to experience. Now here it is. Living within you is the Christ who floods you with the expectation of glory. This mystery of Christ embedded within us becomes a heavenly treasure chest of hope filled with the riches of glory for his people and God wants everyone to know it. So the glory of God is in us now. That's amazing. So where Adam and Eve had the glory clothing them, we have the glory in us. And that's amazing. In John 1.14 it says, the living expression became a man and lived among us and we gazed upon the splendor of his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, overflowing with tender mercy and truth. All right, now what does this have to do with his goodness? Okay, so his goodness, here is his reputation, praise, or glory, is his reputation, praise, honor, splendor, light, and perfection. The Greek word for glory is doxa, and it's a favorable opinion. The idea is that God's opinion marks the true value of things as they appear to the eternal mind, and God's favorable opinion is true glory. You know what that means? doesn't matter what other people think about you. What does God think about you? What is his opinion of you? If other people don't agree, that's their loss, okay? So, the glory of God is his unchanging essence. Now, let me tie this together for you real quick and we'll finish up. In Exodus 33, 18 through 23, this is the story where Moses begged him, I wanna see your glory. See, the reason Moses was like Jesus is because he wanted God. He didn't want all the benefits. He wanted him because he knew if you have him, you have the benefits. It really doesn't matter. But he said, I want to see your glory so bad. And he's like, well, you can't see my face. No man can see my face and live. But listen to what he says. Please show me your glory. Then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So he put him in a rock, and then he put his hand over him, and then he could see his backside. So God equates his glory with his goodness. And then, where he says, I'll proclaim my name, that's kind of like where a king or a monarch comes into a room, and they do the the trumpets and then they announce, right? That's what happened. He announced himself because he's a true king as he came into the presence of Moses and he announced who he is, all his goodness passed uh, by him. So goodness here is the same word that we've already studied. It also means fairness and beauty. The root concept of this noun of goodness is that of desirability for enjoyment. It's used to identify the personal property of an individual, the plentiful harvest of the land, items of superior quality and desirability, inward joy, and the manifest goodness of the Lord, the state of spiritual blessing. God owns goodness. That's His property, and He showed it to them. Now, because we have Him, we should have a life that is that good, right? Okay. Now, in the New Testament, there's not much difference between the two words, but in Mark 10:18, uh, Jesus said to one of the, I think it was a scribe or something, he said, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Now, Jesus knew he was God in the flesh, okay? So he wasn't asking for his sake. He was trying to bring attention to the guy like, hey, why do you think you feel a desire to call me good? because we all know as Jews that no one is good but God. Like he was trying to get them to connect the dots. You're talking to God here, but he didn't quite get it. Okay, so the word good here is possessing the moral qualities of the most general nature, good, goodness, or good act. It's agathos, and it means benevolent, profitable, useful, excellent, distinguished, pleasant, and in respects to feelings, excited, pleasant, joyful, and happy. So that's what we have living on the inside of us. We've literally been designed to enjoy His goodness and to find joy in the manifest goodness. So where His goodness is our home, guess what? We're the home for goodness because God lives in us. Isn't that cool? So it's like, you know, we're sharing the same space. Okay. Sin cuts us off from the glory, and also, His manifest goodness. Goodness is not something you do. It's who He is, and because He lives in us, we're good. Where His goodness was released into creation, His goodness now dwells in us in fullness. His glory has been restored. But, just like Adam and Eve, that goodness must be sourced in the context of the knowledge of God, or the enemy can trick us into thinking something is good when it's not. And we must never doubt his character. So here's why when people say, like if you talk to them about Jesus, they're like, well, I'm a good person. No, unless you're born again and you have his nature in you, you are not good. We're all born with a fallen nature. So people can do benevolent acts. You know, Bill Gates, who wants to take over the world and not let us eat meat, has done lots of good things for society, but it's not sourced from God therefore it's becoming destructive, okay? So we have to understand it's who lives in you that makes you good, not the other way around. Now, to prove that, in Matthew seven fifteen through 20, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits, okay? Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, even so, Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Okay, so this is the best passage in the New Testament to show that goodness is sourced in the nature of a person, okay? Again, you may have some good things that people do that don't know him, but that does not mean they are good intrinsically. Okay? So we have to have God's nature in us by being born again. And we must nurture that nature as well so that the goodness of God is displayed in tangible, beneficial, useful, profitable, excellent, and practical ways. Society, culture, relationships, all that stuff should be impacted. When people taste our fruit, it should taste good. They should taste the goodness of God. Now, in the Greek word, I thought this was interesting. In that passage, good is used in relation to the word fruit. It means deeds, works, and conduct. The word fruit, though, in the Greek means good. So I thought that was interesting. So it's like good, good good goods. yes <laughs> some good goods? That's what that literally means. Uh, it also means constitutionally or intrinsically good without necessarily being benevolent. I'll get to that in a second. Expresses beauty as a harmonious completeness, balance, proportion, good as to quality and character. So what this means is that fruit is the display of the goodness of God in your nature. Therefore, good fruit is that nature being seen in your deeds, your works, and your conduct. Isn't that interesting? Bad trees, they're bad fruit because the person on the inside is intrinsically rotten. Now, people might be like, well, that's not very nice to say. Well, we were all rotten, and Jesus saw it and came so we don't have to be. So it's not very smart to stiff arm his offer of being born again. Because he didn't condemn us, he came to become one of us, forever changed his nature so we could have his. So wisdom is to accept that, right? All right, in Ephesians 4.29 where it says, let no corrupt word come out of your mouth, that's the same word as bad, okay? Fruit means labor, sorrow, and pain here. It also, or bad means uh, labor, sorrow, and pain. Evil in a moral or spiritual sense, wicked, malicious, mischievous. In an active sense, evil which corrupts others. Evil disposed, mal- uh, how do you say that word? Malevolent. Malevolent, malignant, and wicked. Okay, now, to finish, the reason it is important to understand the goodness of God is that some deeds, works, and conducts can appear to be good. But the fruit that Jesus is referring to is sourced in his divine nature and it is sanctified. It follows faith and righteousness and it requires intimacy with God. Even if a person does good things but are not born again or their life is not full of sanctification, faith, and righteousness, those good things may not be sourced from him. And we know what the fruit is in Galatians uh, 20, uh, 5 22 through 24. It's love joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, the word goodness in that passage means active goodness. (coughs) So his goodness is always active. You can't be good by sitting in your house, never doing anything. His goodness motivates you to do something about evil in the world. Even if it's saying something nice to someone in a store that looks like they're having a bad day. That is a goodness of God. Now, uh, the act of goodness, it says, there's more activity in agathosune, which is the Greek word for goodness, than krestotes, which is the word for kindness. Uh, the word goodness does not spare sharpness and rebuke to cause good in others. Isn't that interesting? Uh Uh-oh. So what that means is the goodness of God will chew you out one side and down the other if that is to provoke goodness. Wow. So where it says, where Jesus said that he rebuked the disciples, if you look up the Greek, guys, he chewed them out. It wasn't this, you know, now Peter cut it out. It was like, I told you that I was gonna be raised from the dead and you guys didn't believe. Where have you been the last three and a half years? You know, like he, he definitely let them have it, but not out of anger, but for their sake. He's like, the goodness of God is willing to tell you, straighten up, right? So there is a sharpness to the goodness of God. It's also on display when, I just pictured this, you know, The Lord, who is God in the flesh, but living as man 100%, sits in a corner and methodically makes a whip. Then, not caring who he hit, he starts driving out the money changers because of the zeal of the Lord for the house of God. That was his goodness. Yeah. Whenever he uh, healed like that guy that came up with a withered hand, you know, and the religious people are there because they're trying to see if he's going to break the Sabbath, right? So they're all watching him. And he got mad. And he's looking at them. And he starts rebuking them. If your sheep was in a hole on the Sabbath, would you rescue it? You know? And so then he's like, so you know. And then he stretched out his hand and he looked at him again. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm talking about. Us Christians, we've turned into pansies yes you know it's like the wound of a friend is better than the kiss of an enemy right i mean if you've got someone that's willing to brave loss of relationship to talk to you about how you're acting around them and how you're hurting the relationship that takes bravery that takes courage so we have to be those type of people we understand now don't do anything out of an unrighteous anger. You have to make sure that your focus is their restoration, their goodness. Because if you attack people because you're hurt, now you're perpetuating wounding, right, that will not lead to health. But if you're willing to have that hard conversation because you love that person, there's no greater thing you can do. Because you know that you're laying down your life to reach that person because you know you may experience loss if you don't. Or if you do, because they may just cut you off and throw you away like trash, right? So you have to really understand the goodness of God. It's also a person may display goodness, his zeal for goodness and truth, in rebuking, correcting, and chastising. Christ's righteous indignation in the temple showed his goodness, but not his gentleness. So the goodness of God will not be able to stay silent. Isn't that good? Well, I mean, I was telling somebody the other day, on goodness, (laughs) I told him, I said, I don't know if it was necessarily Mike wanting to, you know, like for my benefit as much as for his, I'm not sure, but he wouldn't let me be a manipulative little Jezebel. You know, he's like, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to wrap me around your pinky. You know, and he'd call me out on it. I told them, it might have been you, huh? I said, I would have ruined everything. If he hadn't have rebuked me during that time in Mike's way, because he has a way, right? If he hadn't have done that, we probably wouldn't be married, huh? Kent would have been ruined. I wouldn't be successful in business, and I probably would have caused five church splits. (laughs) You know? Because I was on that road to being that person. But because he loved me and himself, He's like, no, we're not going to have this type of relationship, okay? But I didn't know it. See, that's the thing. I didn't know I was that jacked. It took someone to say, hold up. You know, you better cut that stuff out, right? So a lot of times we don't know when we're being stupid, and we need someone that's around saying, hey, you're being stupid. You need to straighten up. Oh, I am? Oh, I am. Then it takes (laughs) humility. takes humility where you're like, you're absolutely right. You know? I mean, there's been times people have said things to me. and I was mad at first, but then I started thinking about it. Yeah, they're right, you know? But you do have to know God's voice, because sometimes people say stuff to you, and that's them. That's not you. So you have to have discernment to be like, no, I don't think so. Actually, I think that is probably you. You know? Now, you don't have to tell it to them. You don't want to, you know, cause more problems. You can just... You know, But any criticism, whether it's from people I love or people I don't, whether it's from a person that knows God or doesn't, I take it to prayer. Is there any truth in this? Because if there is, because here's the thing, guys. We're the common denominator. If something keeps happening, right, and you're involved, that means there's something going on with you, and you probably need to switch gears. You probably need to examine things, okay? Which, by the way, I have a good news. after we go off air, I'll, I'll tell you guys uh, about it. So, uh, any any questions or anything before we... I know it's a little bit long, but guys, we only got four more Sundays. You know what I mean? So we got to get this goodness in before it's over. All right. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you that you loved us enough, number one, that when you saw our condition, you didn't abandon us. You didn't just leave us in that state. Instead, you forever changed your being into man to become one of us so we could become like you. And we thank you for the glory of God that dwells on the inside of us and all the fruit of the Spirit. And we ask, Father, that we continue to grow in your goodness, but most importantly, that we're able to recognize something that seems to be good but isn't, that we recognize the source, that we can feel Holy Spirit in something, and when he's not in it, We can be cautious. We can say no to that thing because it's probably not your will. Father, to me, the ability to have discernment on what is good and what is not is probably the most needed thing in this day and age among the people of God. So I ask that you help us to recognize that. I ask that you help us to recognize your goodness, recognize when something is good that is not from you, and help us to make good decisions based on that. But I also... I am overwhelmingly thankful that the glory of God has been restored in us, not just around us. That we fell short by sin, but we didn't ask for it. We didn't ask for Adam and Eve to make that decision. And for that reason, you are a just God because you sent us the answer. So we thank you for that. This morning, we want to give our tithes and offerings to you. We give them with complete joy, no obligation, no reluctance, no compulsion. We give to you and we ask Jesus that you receive our tithes and offerings where you are seated in heaven. We give to you as kings to a king and as a pledge of allegiance that all of our finances are sourced from you, through you, with you, and we give to you willingly because we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.